from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Starting about in 1961, um, actually starting in 1957, essentially, we began to hear about the abduction phenomenon. The abduction phenomenon started out really slowly. We were basic, Brian Betty Hill, 61, and then in Tokyo, we had a small case in Brazil, which happened in 57, we didn't hear about that until 1966 as well. And uh, the interesting thing about the cases that we originally heard on, heard of, was that they were very few and far between. They were rare, they were odd, they were strange. At the same time, the people who were having these experiences seemed to be random. We couldn't really tell whether there was anything overt. What was it about Barney and Betty Hill, you know, that caused an abduction to happen to them? Well, the way we looked at it in those days was there was only one reason. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I wonder what other reason could there possibly be? And not only that, but Barney and Betty Hill said things that led us to think in the experiment model. That is to say, they had skin scraping taken with us, obviously they're examining the specimens here. They asked Barney why his teeth came out, or asked Betty why Barney's teeth came out and hers didn't. They, they, they put a needle into Betty's navel and said they were doing a pregnancy test. Well, all of this was the model for an experiment, obviously. This was a basic situation where you have a model of, there's one, get him. The publication of John Fuller's A Journey Interrupted began a decades-long series of ever more incredible tales of alien abduction. Using the Hill story as a foundation, each successive abduction account had to be more extraordinary than the last. Public interest in alien abduction reached its height in the 1990s, partly because of the hit TV show, The X-Files, which had an ongoing abduction subplot. Another reason was the success of three men who pushed the alien abduction narrative to its limit in a number of best-selling books. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 9, The Troika. In the 20 years following the Hill experience, there was a clear understanding of the type of situation in which a person could be abducted. They would be driving in lonely, isolated places at night. A UFO would appear, and the abduction would follow. But this conception changed, and the study of abductions became something entirely different. UFO researcher... Robert Schaefer. Starting with Bud Hopkins, 
in the 80s. You didn't have to go anywhere to be abducted by aliens. The aliens would come right into your bedroom and grab you, drag you up to the saucer, and then bring you back whenever they were done with you. You didn't have to drive out somewhere late at night and see a light in the sky. You're just sitting there minding your own business, and then all of a sudden the aliens come. Once you've accepted this could happen, you've opened the door to every kind of fantasy and imagination possible. Bud Hopkins was a well-known abstract expressionist artist who became a leading researcher into the alien abduction phenomenon. He published his first book on the subject, Missing Time, a documented study of UFO abductions, in 1981. Hopkins made the conceptual leap that abductions could happen anytime and anywhere. An associate professor of history at Temple University named David Jacobs seized upon this idea and began his own research. We heard him giving a lecture at the opening of this episode. David Jacobs got into the UFO business quite a bit earlier. He wrote a history of UFO uh, belief in the United States back in the 70s. He stayed at this, and then he, too, picked up the idea from Hopkins and whoever else that these types of bedroom abductions were taking place. After his 1975 book, The UFO Controversy in America, Jacobs didn't publish again for 17 years. His next book, The Threat, Revealing the Secret Alien Agenda was specifically about abductions and featured a foreword by the third major figure in this era of abduction research, one who brought with him impeccable academic credentials. John Beck was a uh, oh, was a very important guy. He was not just a PhD, he was a, a professor of psychiatry at the Harvard uh, Medical School. Mac was a very, very talented, very prominent guy, but somehow he got bit by this bug, too, and decided it was real. So then these three guys, Hopkins, Jacobs, and Mac, sometimes refer to them as the Troika. The Troika was a type of temporary government that occurred four times in the history of the Soviet Union, where three leaders sat atop the government without any of them able to exert power alone. These guys thought that they, they were very scientific. And I guess in terms of credentials and stuff like that, uh, they kind of were. In 1987, Hopkins published Intruders, which laid out the case that humans were being abducted and used by aliens for genetic research. In 1994, he met a Boston-based documentary filmmaker named Carol Rainey. In 1996, they were married. I'm Carol Rainey, and I was married for 10 years to Bud Hopkins, abstract expressionist painter and UFO researcher. And I came from a background of spending 20 years making films for epidemiologists in the Boston area. I don't come from a science background originally, but in all of those years of working for epidemiologists, And later in um, New York City with the major medical institutions like New York Presbyterian. I learned a lot about how scientists think about phenomena in the natural world and how they go about gaining real knowledge in the real world. From working with scientists, Carol found a very different world surrounding Hopkins, who was doing UFO research, but was, by training, 
an artist. I married an artist, as did his second wife, I'm sure. But by the time I met him, he'd pretty much given up on being part of the art world in Manhattan. And almost his entire life was really taken up with being this leader in a movement called alien abduction. It was a very overwhelming lifestyle. It was UFOs 24-7. Carol moved from Boston down to New York in 1995, where Hopkins was the center of gravity for a group of people who identified themselves as abductees. So I got my own camera and started shooting yet one more documentary, but this one would be no strings attached. No federal funding, no state funding, no city funding. Funded out of my back pocket. That gave me a great deal of freedom. If Betty Hill had talked to Bud Hopkins in 1995, she would have found that the aliens that he believed were kidnapping and experimenting on people were far different from the leader with whom she carried on a pleasant and occasionally funny conversation. They didn't resemble Kwasga and Juhop either. Bud's work expanded the original narrative, and he did stay relatively close to the pattern from the Hill case, Betty and Barney Hill. But what his writing added to it was that nobody was safe anywhere, that aliens could enter your bedroom at night, coming straight through the walls, coming through the windows. I mean, his view of alien beings in the world was that they were godlike, really. Ordinary physics did not prohibit them from doing whatever they wanted to do to take advantage of people's helplessness. And the abductees were used, in Bud's thought, in the same way that we observe, you know, wolves in the wild. And we experimented on them to some degree from afar. And that's what he felt the aliens were doing to us. They might put tracking devices in us, what's called an implant these days. You know, many of his people came up with those implants partly to add credence to Bud's narrative. And because that was the story that was becoming increasingly popular in mainstream media during the 1980s and 90s. Figure out what that little thing up Ray Soames' nose is yet? No. And I'm not losing any sleep over it. Good night. Bud was very believable. You know, one of the more intelligent people I've ever met. But with this caveat, not at all given to science or interest in science. He knew almost nothing about psychology or psychiatry or recovered memories. He didn't know, except to mouth it a bit, he didn't know anything about scientific protocols or the scientific method and how you use that to make sure that the information you believe you're gaining in the world that that information is valid. As I became more and more part of the UFO world, I became less and less convinced that many of the people doing research were doing it with 
enough valid understanding of science and manipulation of testimony and leading witnesses. How did this gap in knowledge play out in their research after the break? Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Carol Rainey expresses concern that Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs lacked knowledge that should have informed their work with hypnotically recovered memories. This is especially concerning because we know that hypnosis subjects have an increased vulnerability to suggestion. In Hopkins' cases, the way in which quote-unquote memories were created and manipulated is easy to identify. Hopkins could be acting in good faith, but his subject's testimony was tainted. First of all, Peter Robbins would be there as his assistant and would read the the letters as how things came in originally. And Peter would read through them and he'd write abductee on the front or he'd write probable abductee on the front. And then that person would be mailed a kit of information about the abduction phenomenon and then told in the kit to avoid reading the literature in the field. So the new possible abductee would be sent this kit of material. And I think it varied sometimes, but it was information about, you know, the abduction phenomenon. And also the people who were calling Bud knew enough about the field to call a top researcher in the field. They had also often read one, two, or three of his books previously. And they'd watched movies. They watched documentaries he had been in. I mean, he was appearing on the Phil Donahue show, on the Oprah Winfrey show, on Canadian 
talk shows. He was all over. So by the time they show up at Hopkins' house for a hypnosis session, they've already been exposed to his work on alien abductions. When people would first call and begin talking to him, he could go on easily for an hour with each person over the phone, and he would often tell them about the new cases that he was working on. The cue that sends to the person on the other end of the phone is that if you want the attention of this television personality, you might do well, consciously or unconsciously, to have your own memories that were similar to the ones he was interested in. And that is where the tailoring of tales began, long before he even met the people. These people would come to Bud and Carol's house to undergo regression hypnosis. Bud would sometimes talk to the visitor, telling him or her about some of his cases or things that he was interested in. And then Bud would put them under hypnosis. You don't have to lead anybody under hypnosis after that. They already know which way to go. And that happened often. And it's that pre-hypnosis session, all of those sessions, those contacts, is what people on the outside never knew about. Here's Bud Hopkins conducting a hypnosis session with an alleged abductee. This is from a recording of a conference where he presented this tape as part of a lecture. Very difficult. I want you to look around and see what, see what you can see and what you're feeling. Long time ago. Um, on a table? Mm hmm. Slab or something. It's around. It's round. Mm hmm. There's four of them standing beside me. Mm hmm. And they're. They're talking to me. I don't. Mm hmm. I hear them. They're telling me I'm all right. Mm-hmm. You know, you came through it fine. They uh, want something. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they want. I've seen you before. They're in the air. In the air. Mm-hmm. They're apart. It's 
like having a GYN, Pam. It's okay. It's the same. I've had this before. Mm-hmm. Once you walk in, you know, I'm going to touch your shoulder. It's going to feel very calming. When I count to three, you feel a warmth in my hand. One, two, three. Now my hands on your shoulder feel very safe. Much better. Much better. Jacobs also prepped his subjects, and his methods were often less subtle. Here he is, giving a lecture, talking about the consistency of stories he's heard during hypnotic regressions, but also letting slip a clue as to why these stories might be so similar. They may not know it, they may be just not aware of it at all, but we pretty much know, we know the sequence of events that can happen around the world. It almost doesn't matter. In other words, we know when they say A, B, C, we know D's coming, and they're not going to like D. And, uh, you know, and I have to prepare them in my own hypnosis uh, for D. Now, I've done about 730, 750 hypnotic regressions uh, over the past several years. And uh, we see a certain routine here, obviously. This is a strange statement to be coming from a person supposedly engaged in research. Again, he could have the best of intentions... But as we have seen in earlier episodes, a hypnosis subject is particularly vulnerable to suggestion. And of course, the way they lead the witnesses is just pathetic. I think Jacobs is one of the worst. People have pointed this out. They've gone over these transcripts and say, you know, basically, he's telling her what to, uh, (laughs) what he wants to hear. He's, you know, he's, he's telegraphing it right there. And she just tells him what he wants to hear. In 2011, Carol Rainey wrote a lengthy article titled Priests of High Strangeness to expose what she felt like were unscientific and unethical practices among Hopkins, Jacobs, and Mack. When I wrote the article, many of the old-time UFO researchers contacted me privately to thank me for putting that out there. Stan was one of them. And they said, we knew there was something off in this research that Bud and Jacobs were putting out, but we didn't know what it was. We only knew what he told us about how he researched cases. When she refers to Stan, she's talking about Stanton Friedman, who we heard from earlier in this series, mainly about Marjorie Fish and the star map. I didn't bring up Hopkins in our interview, but when he was talking about the qualifications of Dr. Benjamin Simon as a hypnotist, Friedman used Hopkins as an example of someone who did not meet the same standard. We're not talking about some amateur, and look, I like Bud Hopkins. I knew him, I've been in his home, great guy. But Bud was an artist, not a professional psychiatrist or psychologist or hypnotist with training in dealing with traumatic experiences. He did a fine job. I'm not knocking Bud. But on any comparison of skills brought to the problem, there's no question Dr. Simon rules the roost. The other method that Hopkins used with these supposed abductees was support group meetings. Hopkins would host meetings with a number of abductees and conduct a kind of group therapy session revolving around their abduction experiences 
but other issues from their past as well. And what I began to understand from attending those meetings is that if you're new to the field, you could pick up everything you needed to know about being a standard abductee just by going to those support meetings and by talking with other abductees. They would lay out certain patterns and other people would second that. And they would say, oh, that happened to me too. And Bud would guide the discussions. I did call him on this. In terms of support group meetings, I said, why don't you use an AA kind of model where there is no leader, where the witnesses, the abductees themselves could guide the discussion instead of you leading it. And my objection to his leading the discussion was that he would tell people about brand new cases, the things he was most interested in pursuing. Carol describes the participants as bright, sensitive, and artistically driven. While there were occasionally more eccentric people on the margins, she says of the main group that she did not think they were crazy. Not once. They were people to whom something was happening, and that fascinated me, and still should fascinate researchers. If it's, you know, psychosomatic, if the narrative is being developed entirely inside individuals, and then they meet in some sort of a place like a support group, and they begin to share things they've picked up from television series, which were everywhere, or from movies, from reading Bud's books. They came with a hell of a lot of knowledge about what other people were saying about their experiences. They were not blank slates. They came in knowing the material. And when you're working with that, psychologically, research shows there's a great deal of spread of terms and memes and thoughts and patterns between the researcher himself and the people who have come to him for help and between each other. They would pass ideas back and forth. So to me, it was fairly easy to see how without really careful, careful protocols and without being peer reviewed, such a researcher, intentionally or totally unintentionally, could be creating the story of what had happened to all of these people. University of California, Irvine professor Elizabeth Loftus. We heard from her earlier in the series. One of my friend colleagues once said, this group therapy, it's a little like poker, where you say, I'm going to match your memory and raise you one with my even more lurid and bizarre and upsetting memory. And that's a way in which this group therapy situation helps to create an environment where people are trying to come up with ever more interesting and exotic and dramatic stories, because that's what will get attention. And in this case... What would get Hopkins' attention would be stories that would indicate abduction. What Bud called evidence 
would be people sending him snapshots of mark on their body, whether it was a scar or a bruise or whatever. Here's Hopkins from the same lecture as before, this time showing images of these physical marks. Now, very quickly, some of the scars, these are very characteristic. This is the scoop mark rather than the straight line cut. This is what we have on the front of Kathy Davis' leg. I'll show you. You might need a tiny bit of focus on this. Now, this uh, looks as if a tiny little scoop element came in there and took uh, took away flesh. We don't know what this is for, except that obviously would give you a good chance of knowing a lot about that individual's makeup if you had this, the uh, question. The, the mark is, it's hard to say and from memory. I would say it's probably about three-eighths of an inch long. Carol and John Mack realized that as much as they wanted to discover physical evidence of these abductions, these photos fell short of that mark. John knew that those would not be taken well as evidence. You know, it's not something you gather first person. There's no guard on the chain of custody, none of that. We often talk about the echo chamber in the context of politics, where if everyone you hear expresses the same opinions, you begin to uncritically accept them. But it happens outside politics as well. And something like this occurred in the small, intense abduction community, where the incredible might barely provoke a raised eyebrow. At some point, I remember thinking when I was shooting with Bud, we were on Cape Cod and a man I didn't know had called in and was talking to him. And I just walked through the room and I heard Bud say, did they come through the wall this time too? And when I thought about it a few minutes later, I thought, I didn't even break a sweat. I didn't even jump when he said that. I just accepted that's how it happens. And when that happens to you, you know you need to put your guard up even more. This effect could be especially strong on the people at the center of the work, Hopkins and Jacobs, whose observations and theories were mutually confirming. The Jacobs would rent a house on the Cape a few houses down from our house in Wellfleet. And over dinner one night, Dave Jacobs said to Bud, Bud, you and I are the only two people on the planet who really know what's going on with the aliens. I kind of did a double take and I said, the only two people on the planet? Isn't that kind of a dangerous way to think about something that you don't really know for sure? These dangers became realized as Hopkins, Jacobs, and Mac's research led to theories of escalating strangeness. They seem to need genetic material that they're taking, sperm, ova. And we think we are seeing this 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but we see them as well with, you know, 20 people, 50 people, 100 people, 500 tables in a room with people on them in an assembly line fashion. We know they're doing these uh, reproductive experiments and attempted hybridization and so forth. Then Hopkins found the perfect case that ultimately proved the step too far. Next time on Strange Arrivals.
Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane, with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. Betty Hill was portrayed by Gina Rakicki. Barney Hill was portrayed by Jason Williams. Special thanks to the Milne Special Collections and Archives at the University of New Hampshire, John Horrigan, WICH 1310 AM in Norwich, Connecticut, John White and David O'Leary, the executive producer of the History Channel's dramatic series, Project Blue Book. Learn more about the show over at GrimAndMild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.